used to be There's Ted's with drain pipe trousers and Deb's in coffee houses and things ain't what they used to be There used to be trams Hello and welcome along to a rather special episode of the My Old Man at Army podcast. This time round I'm joined by Alan Leach drummer with Shed 7 of course who's here in my hometown of Edinburgh with his hybrid comedy quiz show Alan Shed's interactive quiz show which is a blend of music comedy and everything else you can think of Alan very kindly agreed to give me a bit of time before his run started and we talked about the show and of course about his life as part of Shed 7 you can catch Alan's show at the Mash House in Edinburgh which is located on Guthrie Street every day from 2.25 to 3.25 excluding the 12th of August, and you can bag tickets by calling the box office on 0330-220-1212 or by visiting edfringe.com or justatonic.com to get them online. So, without any further ado... Right, so I'm now here in a very beautiful flat in Edinburgh with uh, Mr Alan Leach, who of course isn't Alan Leach for the next month or so, he's Alan Shedd for reasons that will become clear over the course of our discussion. Uh, Alan, hello. Hi. It's very nice to meet you and it's really nice of you to give me some time. Uh, So we were just talking there before we turned the mic on about the fact that you've got the show here at the Edinburgh Festival at the Fringe and I wonder if you could maybe talk to me about that, explain the, the setup of the show. Um, yeah, it's going to be, well, most people know that I've, I've dabbled in hosting quizzes in different formats for the last, getting on for 15 years now, and they've got kind of funnier as the years have gone on. At my local quiz, where I do one at my local pub, it might be, you know, there's maybe 70 questions, and seven or eight of them questions might be funny. But over the years, I've, I've, I've amassed quite a lot of these questions, so if I go and do like a private event, I'll, it might be more 50% sort of jokey sort of questions or less serious quiz and people have always said oh you should you should do this in Edinburgh and go down well and uh, like an idiot I've took them literally and gone and set it up and done it and it was going to just be it was going to just be a quiz and then I realised that I was in an actual comedy club sandwiched in between two comedians and I just thought oh balls I'm going to have an actual go at doing actual comedy here so this kind of it, it's, it's, it's neither or the other really it's about 50% quiz 50% actual comedy where me trying to, with me trying to actually say funny things and make people laugh. Right, so these... Because in my head, I can see people running a quiz and just being funny because you're feeding off the audience and, yeah. you know, th- there are funny questions, I guess, as well, and yeah. you're able to make witty or pithy comments on the back of that. But what you're suggesting here is that you've actually got a comedy routine... Yeah, it's, yeah. The, that will wind through the quiz itself. Exactly. Yeah, it's about. I mean, it's pretty, a lot of it's pretty basic, quite infantile sort of boy humour. My wife would call it. <laughs> um, it's not. It's not in any way intellectual sort of humour. It's. Um, but it, it's a bit of a coward's way of having a good stand-up comedy, really, because one thing it's made me realise is, you know, these guys that do proper stand-up comedy, it's it's phenomenal what they do. Because the difference is what I do 
if I start to have a wobble, if I've been doing sort of like 90 seconds of what I would call sort of a, like a routine, and it, and it's I don't think it's going very well, I can just go, question 15, what's the capital city of what have you? And, and then I can compose myself while we're doing that. They don't have this luxury, you see. They've just got to... No, they make it up there. On there. Oh, yeah, and, it, and it, it's made me look at the, the, the ones where it's not going so well for them, it's made me look at them in a different light because before you'd think, oh, you're rubbish, you're making a fool of yourself. And now I've had a go at it, I'm just thinking, God, you know, I know how hard it is, I know what, what, it's, what you're going through. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, you're talking about people saying, oh, you should do it at Edinburgh, and that suggests to me that you're probably one of those people who makes their friends laugh, right? And people quite often say to their friends, you're really funny, you should try stand-up comedy. I've certainly had that. A friend of mine said to me once, oh, you know, you're, you're quite a funny guy, you should mm. do stand-up comedy. And, and he was a, a singer-songwriter. He was in a sort of post-Britpop band with Alan White from Morrissey's band. Okay. And then he had a sort of solo album and he said to me, I'd really like you to come down and do some stand-up comedy before... I do my set for this yeah. sort of album launch. And I was very reluctant. I thought, um, you know, nah, being funny with your mates is a different thing, right? Very much so. But he pressured me and pressured me. Eventually had the posters printed up and he put on the posters that he was going to be joined by Scotland's number one stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I had to go down and do a routine. And I kind of cobbled together about, I think maybe 10 minutes worth of material. Yeah. I think I lasted about three minutes. Did you? Yeah, before I made my excuses and, and left. Because after two minutes, I could hear people ordering drinks at the bar, right? Yeah. Uh, it's really really hard mm. so I'm assuming you must have done a few dry runs a few trials before you've got here I've done half a dozen warm ups and yeah I, I wasn't prepared on the first one I did rightfully or wrongly the f- very first one I did I did for friends and family which I don't know if that was braver or dafter than doing it for people <laughs> I didn't know uh, and I just wasn't even though I would say that probably I got I got 60% of the laughs I expected to get I wasn't prepared when, when, when I've been... You see, I laugh at things myself over and over, so I, I've probably been practising at home, laughing at my own jokes, and I've got so used to a laugh there, even though it's my own laugh, <laughs> that when I said the joke, and people... It was... I didn't know what to do. My, my, bra- my brain just scrambled, and it was like someone had ran up and kicked me in the balls really hard. I didn't know what to do, but it's a, over the... F- I've done five since then, and so long as you're prepared for that... Every time you expect a laugh, you're prepared for it might not happen. I'm fine now with it, you know, and you don't always get a laugh where you expect it. And as long as you do on most, on most of the times, it's fine. But yeah, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be and it's been a lot more of a challenge it's been really all consuming um, some people know that I own a pub quiz company and it's in it's a format what we've designed it's kind of like quite high tech interactive you just basically use your, your own you can use your own iPad or phone download an app which turns into like a multiple choice keypad and, uh, and then the host reads out from a laptop computer so people are playing a pub and they all have one device in the middle of the table and the press it. he's reading the questions out, so that's it. So when I initially agreed to do this, it was to promote our format, really, how reliable it is. My real name is Alan Leach, but for the purpose of this, you might have seen on the posters, I'm called Alan Shed. You might be wondering what you've let yourself in for tonight. It's kind of a quiz, but I'm going to try, so I'm going to do a few quiz questions, and I'm going to try and make you laugh in between the quiz questions. You should see some instructions on there. Can you see the instructions? This first letter of the answer, straightforward. Multiple choice, straightforward. Numbers questions, straightforward. Which character, which character from The Simpsons often inserts words like diddly and doodly in between everything he says? It's first letter of the first name. That's all you need to press. First letter. And you're going to have to factor in, I guess, that 
there's going to be people who English isn't the first language at the Edinburgh well, Festival, and you're going to have to factor in that there's going to be a lot of quite judgmental audiences, right? I mean, there'll be a lot of people who are maybe comedy connoisseurs. There, there is the, I factored in the comedy connoisseurs. I haven't factored in, I don't think, enough the, where English isn't going to be your first language, but I think they, they'd be the same with any English stand-up comedian, yeah. really. So I have got to be careful with the quiz content because it's music and comedy themed mainly. I mean, there's daft questions in there, like um, because it's a ten. You have only have ten seconds to answer each question. Um, so I ask a question, then there's a ten second countdown, and you put your answer in. And a lot of it's for it's either multiple choice, well I'll read out options, or it's a lot of it's first letter of the answer. So you've got the full alphabet on your screen, and I'll say, um, you know, what's the capital city of France? Um, they won't be as boring as that. The questions, but if I did, <laughs> if I did then you'd press P. On, on the key, on the keypad. So there's there's a lot of daft questions like, um, but you, you can really have fun with it. With it being the first out of the answer and the money having ten seconds, you can say one I'll probably do is um, what's the first, what's the, what's the last word in this sentence, and half of the people gets what get what's going on and they press S for sentence, and half of them just we haven't bloody said what what you got said a sentence, you know. So that's quite fun. you know just daft thing. A lot of it's just daft stuff like that. Um, and I've seen video clips, so you play music clips as well, right? Yeah. So there's the sound files that you play, and I saw yeah. you playing a little bit of uh, Park Life by, by yeah. Blur, and so I'm assuming that yeah. that's the so letters on the keypad, you yeah, can just, just B they, for they the just band. Yeah, as fast as they could, so it's really competitive, and what's great about the format is with a pen and paper quiz, if you put easy questions in, that you are, if you put make your questions all too difficult then it alienates the people who aren't very clever if you put your questions in too easy then the people who, who want who are good at stuff they get bored really quick but this you, you can put a bit of both in you can put plenty of easy questions in because it's still competitive because me and you would both know blur is but we'd still want to get it faster than you because you get the bonus points um so yeah there's a lot of it doesn't have to be really tricky stuff you can put you know stuff in what everyone's going to know but i am going to be a little bit cautious of um not being all too British sort of thing. I think Blur, Blur's reasonably, reasonably... Reasonably universal. But I won't be putting any Shade 7 in. None of that nonsense. <laughs> we'll maybe get to that a little, in a little bit. So, the Edinburgh shows traditionally are about an hour long. Yeah. So, what's the makeup if we come along to your show? Is it 50-50? Um, comedy quizzing? Is it... Well, it's... Um, Routine, there's probably more like, it's probably only 10 minutes of actual sort of comedy routine and 50 minutes of quiz, but 50% of them quiz questions should get a, a laugh or at least a bit of a giggle yeah. just because, you know, the stupid questions, funny, yeah, you know, and some of it I'll do, like, what's the first letter of the answer and I'll start playing a song, it'll be a song everyone knows, but it's, it's who can scramble the mind quick enough to get to what they think the first letter of the answer is going to be. Um, so it'll be, there's nothing serious about it, I, my one concern is people who don't like quizzes are going to see the word quiz and think that's not for me. It really is not like a quiz where, you know, there's no prizes, there's no... every Someone who's daft as a brush is going to enjoy it just as much as someone who, who enjoys quizzes. And what about the prospect of hecklers? I haven't had a lot... I have to, you have to, The thing is, doing pub quizzes, you don't get hecklers as such, but you get a lot of unwelcome, annoying pissheads who are just in there <laughs> getting on your tits. Uh, so I have had to, you know, you do have to deal with um, pains in the ass. Heck, is it, is it, yeah, bring it on. I don't know. It, you have got the advantage of, you know, having the microphone. I think having the microphone 
and I'm using a wireless microphone, so you can literally go over and, and they're sat down, I'm stood up. So you've got plenty of reasons to feel like you've got an advantage, haven't you? You know, you, you, your voice is louder and you're standing up, hovering over them. I don't know. And and the thing is, so there are hecklers who'll just heckle for the sake of heckling. But if you, if you, hopefully, if you don't give them reason to heckle, i.e. you don't, if you keep things moving and people are interested in what you've got to say, then they shouldn't be more interested in what the heckler's got to say, should they? So I wonder if I can throw a couple of quiz questions at you. <laughs> Go on. This failed last time someone tried this on a podcast. Well, they're not really quiz questions. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no, being it, slightly it. facetious. So, oh, no, so it's not actually gone. 10th of March, 1994, uh-huh. I come and see Shed 7 for the first time. Mm. Uh, at the, I think it was Lucifer's Mill in Dundee. And um, who was supporting you? Compulsion. Correct. Yeah. Compulsion. I quite like compulsion. Yeah, I can't actually. Uh, I, I couldn't answer that. There was a, a guy called Garrett, the guitarist. I know he went into kind of production and things. I don't know how well he did it. He was like a red haired. He had like dyed red. That's hair. right. I remember him. Yeah. And the singer had bleach blonde hair. Because it's funny to think about 1994. Britpop still wasn't really a thing, really, at no, that early part. It was, it was still new wave and new wave. Things, and yeah, they were heavier, weren't they? They, they were, were a bit like punkier. Yeah, a bit punkier. A bit like Smash and Blessed Ethel. You know, yeah. it was that kind of yeah. indie punkier side of things. Yeah. I got an autograph from uh, the lead singer of Shed 7 that, that night, a guy called Rick Witter. I don't, uh, know, I don't uh, know if uh, you know him. Uh, he seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, mean, I mean, nice enough. Yeah. You know. Um, and uh, the only thing for him to sign was a packet of guitar strings. Right. So I, I don't know whose guitar strings they were. They were but And he, he signed it. And I think this shows how early on in things we were. Mm. Rick's autograph that night was Roll Out the Barrel. Right. Love Rick Witter. Oh, yeah. Can you explain that? Not at all, no. Um, it sounds like the sort of thing he would, he would write. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know why he would write that. It's not like it was... The, we, we were quite infantile back then. We had like buzzwords and that only meant things to us, but that doesn't jog any kind of memory. <laughs> Roll out the barrel. The barrel um, so my second... Unless he does get things wrong a lot, Rick. So maybe he thought it was like a Scottish phrase when it's actually more of a London phrase, I think, isn't it? Right? I, I would have no. said so. I would have said it's he probably, probably thought He was probably saying having a little sort of... bit of slightly sort of pocket Scotland and, and just getting it wrong. That sounds like the sort of thing Rick would do. He probably <laughs> thought he was saying something like, OK, I knew that he was saying something about <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if that sounds racist, me saying that this is 1994, so you, you get away with it. Uh, That's right. It was yeah. it was in the old days, right? It's fine. It was, yeah. Uh, now John Harris of the Guardian yeah. wrote a book all about Britpop, uh-huh. and it really is hailed as the kind of definitive story, right? It's kind of the Blair era and Britpop and the rise and fall of New Labour and all that kind of stuff. It's the definitive story of of, of Britpop. Mm. How many pages do you think Shed Seven are mentioned on in that book? Um, I've never read it, and we used to know John a bit. Um, I'm assuming that you're the really the, you're asking because you're saying there's either a lot or there isn't enough. So I'm going to plump that you're saying there isn't enough. Go on. One. One page. No, I, I tell you the only reason why I say that it's, it's a kind of three part question, right? So the sheds I mentioned right at the beginning of the book, and a kind of list of bands that are kind of predating the term Britpop. Mm. So I think you're in there with like Elastica and. 
I don't know, there's two or three other bands. And so the reason I'm asking is I'd started writing a slightly longer piece on the band. Um, and so I went to the, the index and looked up at Shed 7 once and I thought, that can't be right. I mean, Shed 7, at the, the risk of blowing smoke up your arse, mm. would have, were a, remain a huge live draw, dozens and dozens of singles, three albums that could comfortably fit in the time frame of that label mm. of Britpop, Top of the Pops, going live, pick a television show, right? you know, like a big band, mm. like a proper feature, you know, and still one of the bands that people really adore. Huge sellout gig at Castlefield Bowl just what, last summer that was, yeah. right? One mention. Second question then on this <laughs> yeah, topic. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> apart from, I think there was a lot more... It feels like we're a slightly bigger fish now because it, a lot of the others have kind of slipped away or aren't playing at the moment. So we do feel like a bit more of a, a key figure in the whole Britpop, the 90s Britpop thing. At the time, it did feel like there was a lot going on. There was a lot of others. And there was also the thing that Britpop... I know there'll be Oasis will have been in there obviously massively, but the whole London thing, people associated Britpop with London a lot more. Like well, the, the, there comes the second part of the question then. How many pages do you think menswear are mentioned exactly, on? There you go. Um, I don't know. Thirteen. Are there? Yeah. there are thirteen separate page yeah. references for menswear. Now you know nothing particularly against menswear. Yeah. They only had one. Well, they had two albums, I think. Didn't yeah, they? two albums. Yeah, but one during the time. Yeah. So my question is, the real question is, is that morally justifiable? Um, I would say not. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, we, we hung out with John a bit. He did some uh, early interviews with us, and he was always, you know, and he never said anything bad in it. He was always complimentary, and I, I like the guy. So I, he probably, I don't think he's probably done it out of malice. He probably, I don't know why, you know. I have my own theories. that relevant. Yeah, it's. I just. I thought it was curious, you know, when I was sort of researching for the piece, and I looked at that and I thought, you know, that is really interesting. That my theory is, at the risk of sounding like some, you know, kind of raving lunatic on the far left mm-hmm. of politics, which I'm categorically not. I wonder if there was a class issue in there as well, and right. I think you're hinting at it with the London thing, right? Yeah. It's all very London centric. Um, you know that the guy that writes the Guardian, Owen Jones, wrote a book called Chavs, all about the demonisation of the working class. Yeah very highbrow all of a sudden, aren't we? And uh, one of the things he talks about at the beginning of that book is the coverage that was given to the Madeleine McCann case yeah. and the coverage that was given to little Shannon Matthews. Right, so yeah. little Shannon Matthews is a kid, remember, who her mum yeah, had yeah, abducted yeah. and hid her under the bed and uh-huh. what have you. It was a very sad story. And Owen Jones's theory about that was, and he's not a guy I've got a huge amount of time for, Owen Jones, I think he's kind of lost his marbles a little bit over the last couple of years. But one of the things he suggests is that the reason that Madeleine McCann gets a disproportionate amount of coverage. I mean, they're both two pretty little girls. They both yeah. go missing. Um, he reckons it was to do with the fact that all the people writing about Madeleine McCann were just like Madeleine McCann's family. Right. They were Oxbridge educated. They came from very nice middle-class communities. You know, they couldn't understand how something like that could happen to families like them. Whereas when they were talking about Shannon Matthews, they were dealing with communities where people went to the shops in their jammies and their slippers, right? right yeah. and, and that's actually mentioned in one of the newspaper articles. I think it was either in the, the Times or the Guardian itself, you know. And it's almost like a bit kind of sneering and a bit like, ugh. Yeah. I wonder if there's a bit of that around the Britpop story that so much is focused on people pretending to be Cockneys. Yeah. And something a little bit more authentic, like Shed Seven or Oasis, who got you know more than a fair share of coverage, but there was a little bit of you know yuck about them. There's also the the the, the music as well. At the time, 
um, we weren't even sure whether we should have been classed as Britpop because before that we were we were classed as you know we were lumped in with new wave of new wave and something else before that um, uh, which I can't even remember what it was but then when Britpop came around you were kind of happy to, no one really wanted to be labelled as Britpop I don't think anyone really did and sometimes we would be and sometimes we wouldn't be it's only really since everyone's kind of said yeah you would shed seven would definitely Britpop because it, it seemed to have uh, a, a lot of the a lot of it had a, a more kind of um, harking back to a previous sort of time sort of sound like the sixties or something, like menswear sort of had the mod thing going on. Didn't yeah. it? Whereas we were a bit more, slightly more doing our own thing. I mean, we were more kind of just really obsessed with the Smiths and the Stone Roses. I think that's kind of where our sound came from more, uh, less looking back to the sixties or anything. You're right to talk about Instant Pleasures, though. I mean, it wasn't just a, a, a good album. I think that break from recording mm. made it sound like it was an album that you almost had to make. Yeah. You know, it didn't sound like you were making an album because you thought, oh, we can make an album, mm. you know, make oh, a couple yeah, of quid. They weren't going through the motions. No. Every, everyone in the band just put everything they had into that. And people are saying, when are you doing another one? And I, I honestly haven't really recovered from that one yet um, in terms of... I wouldn't want to. It's not so much the you know the music came reasonably easy, and the the, the recording process was just the best ever with that guy Youth producing. He was mm. amazing. It's all everything else that goes with it. The, the, the politics of the getting it in the shop, getting it. You know what you have to do. All the decision making, the album sleeve. We all have kind of different ideas about everything. You know what's that songs, and everyone gets in gets involved. And I hadn't missed any of that. I'd missed the being in the studio. And like I say, if 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 Rick and Paulo, Avi and Joe came and said, "Here's this album. It's all written. Youth wants to record us. We're going in, you know, in three weeks' time." I'd be there like a shot. But if they said to me, "Do you want to start writing some new stuff now?" And then we'll we'll have to start dealing with the record labels, get a budget together, do this, plan this, what. Then it seems like a lot more of an odd, you know, yeah. a, a big decision to make. I aren't saying we won't, but we, it, it was it was a proper. We put everything into that album, and like you said, we, we probably wouldn't have had everything to put into it if we'd been putting an album out every eighteen months for the last twenty five years. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I, round about the time that it came out, I interviewed Mark Morrison, the Blue Tones, and I said to him, "Oh, what about a, a Blue Tones album?" You know, that'd be good. Because in my head, because I'm not a musician, it's that easy, right? Mm. You just sit down and write some songs and then you record it and you release it. And I'm, I'm not thinking about all the stuff you've just talked about. Yeah. I just want a new album. And he said something really interesting, and I think quite complimentary about you guys and about that album. And he said that it has to... If you're a, if you're a serious musician, if you really care about the music, it's not what I've just described. It's not just let's write some songs and 
chuck him out. Yeah. It, it has to feel like a thing that you have to do. Yeah. And, and when I heard the, the first couple of tracks off of Instant Pleasures and then you hear the album as a whole, the, the interesting thing was that there was no filler. Right? I mean, yeah. every single one of the tracks on that could have been released as a single 25 years ago or five weeks ago. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just sounded like the album... Mm. The only album. I was as amazed as anyone. I, I wasn't sure we had it in us when we started. Well, I was. I, I'm always the first to say, "Do we want to be doing this?" You know, if, I always say, "You know, if if we've written a song, I'm the first to say this, this isn't as good as the stuff we used to do. I'm yeah, I'm not interested in putting it out." And then when um, it just sort of happened, just two. I think it just took two songs. It's not easy, and one of the others, maybe Victoria just came out of a couple of rehearsals and then instantly from then on it thought oh we have still got you know we have still got it and then we just carried on the next few months just doing it because it just felt like it was happening doesn't mean it'd happen again if we went in to do it again but I was as I was as amazed as anyone that it, that it just you know when you hear stories about you know other big bands albums and, and they say it was just a chemistry something happened at that time something just felt right that's exactly how it felt. It wasn't laboured at all. Whereas, you know, if, if we went to do it again now, it might be. It might not. I mean, we are, we're we going to get together again. We're going to start rehearsing for the tour. And we will start knocking around some ideas. And, it'll just, and, it, and it will be a case of if the ideas sound great, then we'll do something with them. If they don't, then we won't. And what about, to go back to that time again, just really quickly, were there other bands at that time that you felt more of an affinity with? Um, we always felt on the outside. I never felt that people often said you have like loads of other people's phone numbers in your phone from, from out of them people, <laughs> and I don't, and I never did. We always felt a little bit like outsiders. I mean, to be fair, I've got Mark Morris's number in, in my phone now, and a few others. But back in the day, I didn't. He would never give me his phone number. Well, we probably, no, we probably didn't have phones, did we, to be fair? Well, that's true as well, yes. Yeah, so there is that element to it. But we had, like, a few sort of celebrity friends. But, yeah, it never really felt, when you say an affinity like that. But with that said, we did, a lot of bands supported us more so than us supporting them. Like yeah. Redcast, we had the Blue Tones, Stereophonics... Supergrass, they all came because we were. Uh, what annoys the only thing that annoys me, you're saying all these things with John Harris, and the only thing that annoys me is when we get lumped in with bands who kind of jumped on the bandwagon. That's what bothers me because uh, whatever whatever negative stuff people have to say about Shed Seven, we put our first album out at the same time as Oasis put their first album out, right. and we put our first single out at the same time as Oasis put the first single out. So we never we didn't jump on any Britpop bandwagon. We were we were we were ahead of. Uh, a lot of the others, so they wound up supporting us because we got a foot in the door first. So, Bluetons supported us, Cast, all them what I just mentioned, Ash supported us, they all kind of came up doing these tours to us. And it, while I say I never had any celebrity friends, we were we were always a sociable bunch, and we did have, we did, when we bump into these guys at festivals, we'd always have a really good laugh with them, but then it, will, it isn't like, oh, I'm in London in a few weeks, I'll give, I'll give you a ring. <laughs> uh, we just, we'd just wait till we just naturally sort of organically bumped into them again. I mean, Supergrass were good guys. We're good friends with Cass now, we were good friends with Cass. They were on the same record label, but it was very competitive, I remember that. Was that um, 
us and the record label and the management, everyone was obsessed with chart positions and who'd got this front cover on this and why has, why has Cass got a front cover on that? And we, you know, it was really competitive and you know, everyone would always obsessed with like midweek chart positions and that. <laughs> Sounds pathetic now. If you had Cast have got, you know, Cast have got a midweek of eight, God. Uh, our midweek's only 11 that's terrible news going to the record label what can they do you know and, and if Cass told you that it wasn't like that and that was just Shed 7 being like that that's bullshit everyone was like that everyone no I think you I, I, I think you're telling the truth that Louise uh, Wenner and her memoir Just for One Day which is a really great book actually is it, yeah? it's, it's really great it's a really really great yeah. book and she talks about certain bands she doesn't name them but from the outside I've got a feeling that I know who the bands are mm. I would need to turn the mic off before I, I revealed that. But she talks about some of these boys who were presenting themselves as sort of indier than now, yeah. being absolutely prepared to slit their grandmother's throat yeah. for a high midweek chart yeah. position. That's not the exact phrase, but she says something about you know murdering their gra- their own yeah, grandmothers yeah. in order to get it. What, meanwhile, they're wearing you know distressed leather jackets that have been bought by a stylist yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So I think you know that that's another aspect of the Britpop thing, right? I think people like you. And cast and, and various others. There was a slightly more authentic feel about it. Mm. You, you didn't feel like Shed Seven were putting on a Yorkshire accent. We were we were terrible with stylists. I think we 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 used to they used to dread having to come to us because we just did not want to play the game. Uh, and it, just ba- basically us being having no sense of style ourselves. I don't think. And, <laughs> You could argue that you know we had our own style, but I think it was just all them. They, they turn up with these clothes. There's one thing you probably remember it. It was one of the glossy, like the Q or the Select or something, where we just said the records label said just for once, will you just let the stylist style you? Because what they'd do, they'd turn up with uh, like a rack of clothes. And we would maybe, well, I don't mind them shoes, I'll put them trainers on, but I'm wearing, I'm wearing my own shell suit while I've brought with me. You know I mean? <laughs> uh, and there was this one time where they just said, look, will you just wear the stylist's clothes? And I wish I had, I wish I had the picture to show you, because uh, we did it, we played the game. And I wish I had the, you, you'll know the picture if you see it, it's so obvious which one it is. And we'll have a look on internet after and see if it's still there. We're in like, kind of like these fur... Oh, it's awful! It's absolutely <laughs> awful. I'd rather, you know, and it, it. I mean, we never looked great, but when we let the stylists <laughs> do their thing, that this stylist do this thing, we were men. They'd gone for like a kind of a bit kind of like gangstery sort of pimpy sort of look. It's awful. We're gonna have to have a look at it and see so, if we find it on Instagram. So it's a good look for for lads from Yorkshire, yeah. right? Oh, it was ridiculous. And around that point, my time with Alan was up mainly because we were drawn into conversational cul-de-sacs that I've edited out in the interest of not boring you with my theories on the best and worst songs of the Britpop era. Let's face it, you don't need to hear all of that again. Huge thanks once again to Alan for speaking to me, and remember, you can catch his show daily at the Mash House on Guthrie Street from 2.25 to 3.25, and you can get tickets from edfringe.com or justatonic.com or by calling the box office on 0330 2201212 Thanks to you for listening too. Bye.
the words right out of my 